0: Well, good morning to you. It's a joy uh, to be here with you. And I would say that although my wife, Jerry, and I normally attend Anderson Campus, uh, we constantly are thinking about and remembering you all here in prayer and just praising God for what God is doing through your lives here at Southwood. Uh, we just see wonderful things happening, and we see lots of lives Uh, being built up uh, through your faithfulness, your attendance, your participation, and your following God's uh, leadership for your life. And again, I thank God for that. This morning, in the flow of series of messages on Isaiah, we're going to come to the topic of worship. Uh, As the series continue and as Blake continues to unfold Isaiah for you, There will be many other focuses uh, that will be lifted up, but today's focus out of Isaiah is on worship. And we're going to ultimately come to chapter 12, and we'll get there in just a few moments. It is at that point in chapter 12 that uh, we begin to see the response of worship in the lives of God's people. So here's what I would like to do to get us to chapter 12. I would like to begin, first of all, in talking about the context in which Isaiah wrote these words. What was going on in the life of the nation of Judah at that point? And then secondly, let's look at true worship. Since this is the focus that will ultimately be illustrated in chapter 12 when we get there, Let's look at what the Bible has to say about our worship. What is it that God wants from us as we come to him to open our hearts in praise and worship of him? And so ultimately, we will come to Isaiah chapter 12 and see an example of true worship. I read on email this past week, and perhaps you got it too, the story of a man who was enjoying a very pleasant sleep in bed when his wife suddenly yanked the covers off the bed and announced, time to get up and get ready to go to church. Meekly, the man told his wife, I don't want to go to church today. Let me just stay here and enjoy this wonderful sleep. Without any compassion at all, his wife looked at him and said, look, bozo, you have to go to church today. Because you're the pastor. <laughs> I don't know, but sometimes, you know, with we can experience church becoming so routine, that perhaps it really doesn't have the draw in, on our lives to come and to participate in something that fills our souls and uh, gladdens our hearts. Sometimes it can become so routine that we don't even look forward to coming. Well, I would say to you that what we're going to look at today will enable us to see worship in a different light. So in chapter 12, when we get there, we're going to encounter this verse. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And that's the reason for our true and our heartfelt worship is that we're coming to the Holy One of Israel, Almighty, Everlasting God, and it it is Him whom we worship. So let's look at, first of all, the context in which Isaiah wrote these things, which I think gives even more importance to the worship that we're going to look at. You need to understand that when Isaiah was writing these words, that Judah, in which the southern two tribes of the nation Israel, was under hostile intent from the northern ten tribes of Israel, which is called Israel or alternately Ephraim. And they had allied with Syria to come down and defeat Judah in Jerusalem Take over all of that, and set their own king on the throne of Judah. That's what the Jews in Judah were living under was that threat. Ahaz, their king, was responding to that threat by wanting to bypass Ephraim and Syria and go to an even more dominant power in the region, Assyria, and make an allegiance with them for protection of Judah so that the intent of Syria and Ephraim could never come to pass. On the other hand, Isaiah saying, Hold on a moment. There is another alternative. And that alternative is to trust Almighty God. For you see, God, and He starts in chapter 7 through 11, right before we get to chapter 12, promising all that God is going to do. God is going to send a Messiah and is going to send that Messiah as we see. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. First of all, God is going to fulfill your need by sending you the Messiah, the one who will draw you in to a salvation relationship. You're worried about a momentary thing in the life of the history of Judah. God is saying, I'm going to take care of your need that is even deeper than that for time and for eternity. I'm going to bring you a savior. But that's not all. He says also, and uh, chapter 11 is a good example of this. He promises in chapter 11 that no matter what happens to Judah and to Israel, he is going to withdraw them from the nations of the world and regather them. And he's going to rebind together the northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes, into the nation Israel again. But even more importantly than that, God, under the new covenant, is going to implant a new heart in them, a heart that receives Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Savior, and results in their salvation. Oh, listen, God knows that you and I face the difficulties of our lives every day of our lives, There are times when we feel like the challenges and the difficulties of our lives are about to overwhelm us. And yet God holds out in front of us always that promise that he will be with us. And he offers to us his very own son whom he gave to die so that you and I could have salvation. He paid the price for our sins so that we would not have to pay that price. No matter how difficult the lives in Judah became, no matter how difficult your life and mine becomes, God is always out in front of us. God's already solved that problem for us by providing us salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. And so we see that promise and it should certainly have gladdened the heart of the people, but it did not. They chose to go forward with their alliance with Assyria. And so we come then to ask, well, what is it that God really wants when we come to him in full worship and praise of his name? Let's look first at a couple of passages in the Old Testament. I'm not going to go through all of the sacrificial system. We'd be here until this time tomorrow to do all of that. You'll be glad to know I'm only going to focus on two passages in the Old Testament. The first is Psalm 24. And Psalm 24 asks the question, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may come into the presence of God? And the answer is, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And you say, whoa, (laughs) that leaves me out. I'm not qualified to come and worship God. Well, no, we're not. And it's only an activity of God that makes us to have clean hands and a pure heart. It's only when we, through faith in Jesus Christ, allow God into our lives... Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins his transforming work. And because of the salvation that God provides and the shed blood of Christ, we are washed clean. And we can come into the presence of God with clean hands and a pure heart. And that's the only way we can come. And it involves an attitude on our part to ask after we have received Christ and we are a child of God to ask God for forgiveness for our daily sins, so that He, like He promises in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, to forgive us our sins, and it's interesting, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we come with clean hands and a pure heart. But then we go, secondly, to a passage that Blake has already preached, And I don't want to go back over this to reiterate what Blake has said. I just want to draw out of this experience in Isaiah chapter 6, what God teaches us about worship. And so I would invite you, if you would please, to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And we read in those first eight verses these words. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And Isaiah seeing all of this and responding to it said in verse 5. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. What does this passage teach us about true worship? I'd like to move through that very quickly. First of all, it teaches us that worship focuses on God and on who God is. Isaiah begins this experience by seeing God. He wasn't looking at himself, he was looking at God. And our worship has to be first and foremost a desire to come into God's presence and to lift our hearts in praise and worship of Him that's focused on Him and on who He is, His character, and all that He is and all that He performs. And I ask the question, oftentimes when we come to worship, why do we come to worship, first of all, seeking what it's going to mean to us? When God desires that we come seeking to praise him and to exalt him and to lift him up and to praise him for all that he has done. Sometimes we hear people say, I'm not being fed. I'm not getting anything out of worship. I'm not being nurtured by worship. I don't get a blessing out of worship. I want to ask the question of myself and all of us. Have we ever asked, is God enjoying this worship? Is God getting anything out of my pouring my heart out to him in worship? And I can guarantee you, and we'll see it in other passages, that when God is receiving our worship, we then are blessed, we are encouraged, our hearts are strengthened, and we have a new sense of God's presence and blessing in our lives. We benefit from worship, but the focus of our worship is first of all on God and on Him and who He is. And one of the things that keeps us distracted is how we see God. I said it focuses on his character and who he is. And I would like to say to you that one of the difficulties about this is this. And that is our worship when we come to God is not how we think God is or how we think God ought to be. God is the totality of all that He is and He is so much more than we can even imagine and and dream up. So much so that when we come to God in worship we ought to be awestruck to be in the presence of such a God as this. You see the totality of God is that He is First of all, transcendent. He is so much different than we are that in some sense as the creator of the universe, he goes way beyond anything that we could imagine or form in our mind to describe him. He is, as one person has said, he is wholly and totally other than we are. But that same God who is out there is the same God who is in here. He's close by. The Holy Spirit is the full illustration of that. The Holy Spirit, we are told, dwells within us. How much closer can God get to us than that to live within us? So the reality is God is out there. God is in here. But then God is also the God of law and the God of gospel. The God of justice and judgment The God who punishes when punishment is necessary to teach us and to draw us back from sin. But that same God is the God of the gospel where the emphasis is on grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and caring. And one of the things that's happened in our theology and our churches today is that we have skewed this whole vision of God so that we're no longer overwhelmed by the majesty and the glory of God. We have put God just about right there. So that what we emphasize today is the love of God, the grace of God, and rightfully so in one sense, because this is the direction the New Testament takes us when we move from the law, observing the law, into observing salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But when we define God right there and don't take into consideration all of this, we're missing the majesty of God when we come to worship him. Do you see what I'm saying? And do you see that when we only see God like this, that our that our worship is circumscribed, it is thwarted, it is stunted. And we need to open ourselves to the fullness of who God is. Well, it also teaches us in Isaiah chapter 6, it causes us to see ourselves as we are. Isaiah saw himself and he said, whoa, Is me. If God is this great, I then look at myself and I see I'm just a sinful person. I need what God alone can provide. And seeing ourselves while we're worshiping God puts us in the place to know that we need God's love, we need His forgiveness. We need His salvation. We need the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to be going on in our lives every moment of every day. That's what true worship does for us. And it moves us to service. God said, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. I would like to suggest to you and to myself That part of worship is serving God. One church had a sign that I really like. It says, enter to worship, depart to serve. And that's what our worship of God ought to motivate us to do. To be so filled with God's presence. To be so filled with the joys of exalting Him That when we leave the worship experience, whether that's here in church or it's in the privacy of your own room or your own closet, that that worship experience ought to be so generating in our lives that we can't wait to get out into the world to continue to worship God by telling people who He is and what He can do in their lives as well. Worship includes serving the Lord. Well, let's move very quickly then to some New Testament guidance. And I would invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we'll read verses 23 and 24. The background of this is that Jesus stops at Jacob's well in Samaria for a drink of water. And there he encounters the Samaritan woman. And she asks him a question, who's right Are we Samaritans right when we say that you need to worship God here on Mount Gerizim? Or are the Jews right when they say that you need to worship God in Jerusalem at the temple? Listen to this wonderful answer that Jesus gives her, John chapter 4, verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks... To be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now what do we see there? We see first of all that God is the initiator of worship. It says, does it not, in that passage, God seeks those to worship him. And then secondly, God is the object of our worship. He seeks them to worship him. And third, he says that when we come to worship, we need to worship in spirit. Now, immediately, our thought would be that he's talking here about the Holy Spirit, but hold on, hold on. Maybe there's something additional here. I certainly agree that the Holy Spirit is involved and we'll touch on that in just a moment. But I'm wondering because it does not have a definite, the word spirit does not have a definite article. And the word spirit is not capitalized like it always is when it's referring to the Holy Spirit. That God maybe is talking more about power spirit. What spirit do we bring when we come to worship God? Is it a heartfelt desire that drives us to burst forth in praise of God? What's the spirit that we bring? Do we come in that sense of my full personhood being involved in the worship of God? So that it has praise of my lips. It has physical uh, expression through our singing and other kinds of things. It involves all of that. And it's a kind of spirit that says, I'm here First and foremost, honor God in all that I do. And so your spirit is key to what God desires when we come to worship Him. But as I said, the Holy Spirit is involved in that with us. Romans 8.26 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us, with groanings too deep for words. So the Holy Spirit takes our best efforts and translates them into the will, expressions of the will of God to honor God even more. But we need to come with the right spirit in our hearts when we come to worship Him. Next, he said, worship in truth. And this means that we worship God as he has revealed himself in the word of God. Not how we think God ought to be, not how we want God to be, but how God has revealed himself to be in his word. And when our worship comes right out of the expressions of the word of God, they then are honoring to God and acceptable to him. When we go to God and say, God, now I want you to be like this and I want you to do that, and I would, like it, I would like to have my request before this time tomorrow. We're not honoring God. We're honoring us. And God wants us to come to honor Him. And so the truth of God's self-revelation in the Word of God is exactly what He desires from us. But our response is the same response that we saw in Isaiah And that's in Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2 that says we are to give God our lives as our spiritual service of worship. Also, 1 Peter chapter, I'll get it right in just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2 says we are living stones being built up a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we have worship that's expression of our hearts and of our lips. And we have worship that involves our going out with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as we look in the New Testament, what are the activities that give rise to this kind of worship? I'd like to suggest to you that it is at least these. Prayer, preaching and teaching, reading the word. Testimonies, singing and music, the taking of communion, our giving of our offerings, and our service that we've already talked about several times. As I see worship in the New Testament, those are some of the key elements of what God invites us uh, to do in worshiping Him. And so we come then to Isaiah chapter 12, and we'll do this very, very quickly. Isaiah chapter 12 is divided, Uh, you'll notice it's only six verses long, and it's divided into two sections, the first three verses and the second three verses. The first three verses have to do with Israel's thanksgiving. Remember I said at the outset that God is promising that in the day of the Lord, which is yet in prophecy, we think toward the end of the tribulation, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, God is going to regather Jews from all over the world. And He's going to implant in them a new heart. And they're going to believe in Christ and receive Him as the true Messiah. And as a result of that, Israel is going to be so overwhelmed by the goodness and the greatness of God in accomplishing that in their lives that they're going to burst forth in praise and worship of God. Let's read that quickly. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. Do you realize what a tremendous admission and revelation that is? Jewish people for generation after generation after generation have sought to accomplish salvation in their own way. And have never really turned to the fullness of God's provision for them. And they will not until they receive Jesus Christ as Messiah. So they've tried worshiping idols. They've tried human alliances. They've tried all of those kinds of things. And nothing has worked. But now, now, after all of that time, they have salvation. What a joyous Joyous, wonderful thing that is. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. So they worship God in fullness. And you can just imagine if we transport ourselves forward to that day to be in the presence of the Jewish people when they finally know God like they have wanted to know God and that's fully their experience. What a joyous atmosphere that's going to be to be in. And so much so that in the last four verses... They cannot contain. They cannot sit on that joy. They have to go out and do what God called them to do when he formed them in a na- as a nation. And that was to be a beacon to the nations around them to proclaim the Holy One of Israel, Almighty God. They never did that. But now because they are truly saved, they're going to go out and be the beacon to the world to proclaim the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in verses 4 through 6. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for He has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Praise God that Israel is not only going to be saved, they are going to be the proclaimers of the good news to the rest of the world. Well, we are about to move to the slide that you've been looking for because... It is the last one. Let's look back over what we've said. And let's see the heart of what we have said in this definition of worship. It says this. Worship is the humble. That's that attitude of heart as we come to God. The humble response of regenerate people. People who know Jesus Christ as Savior. Regenerate people. To the self disclosure, what God says about Himself in the Word of God, of the Most High God, based on the work of God, that's what we see in our midst and we praise God for, achieved through the activity of God, He is the initiator, and our worship is directed to God, and here's where we come in, and is expressed by the lips in praise. And by the life in service. Enter to worship. Depart to serve. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God. How mighty and glorious is your name. Thank you God. For all that you are. And all that you do. Our hearts are overwhelmed. When we consider, God, all of that about you. And we come today to open our hearts in unfettered praise and worship. Oh, God, in the midst of this, may we glorify you. May we exalt your holy and precious name. And because, God, we know that as we lift you up and you are honored that our hearts are blessed in that process and strengthened and encouraged and motivated. And might we respond to that blessing on our hearts by going out from this place to share your worship with all with whom we come in contact, the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for coming.